It's great to hear those things twice. <laughs> but uh, I was thinking of, I think these words were attributed to Charles Spurgeon, the 18th century preacher, but it could have been someone before him. You know, it happens sometimes. Someone says something and they, they get lost in the mix, you know, and someone else gets credit. I don't know. I think it was Spurgeon who said about the Bible in context about the whole idea of not being able to prove God. He said, uh, God proved himself to us through his word. And, and he talked about how the word of God is like a lion. You just unchain it and let it go and it will prove itself and defend itself. I thought that was always pretty helpful for me. So that's why we talk about the Bible a lot here. You know? Just like, let the Bible go. It proves itself and, and God changes lives miraculously and spiritually as it's being read and talked about. So anyway, random thoughts. All right. We're in the Gospel of Matthew right now at our church. If you're visiting, welcome. We're glad you're here. We're in the middle sections of this book. It's the first book of the New Testament. There are four gospel accounts, which is a genre of the Bible, the first section of the New Testament, which are four different accounts from four of Jesus's either disciples or close associates to disciples about the, uh, the early life of Jesus Christ, his birth first in two of the four accounts cases, his ministry, his healing ministry, and ultimately his death and resurrection. And we've been calling the middle section of Matthew, we're still before the latter two, uh, third or half, roughly, where uh, Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. That's the climax of that book, of, of the Gospels, and all of the Bible. So if you're new to the Bible, know that everything in the Bible is ultimately, the, the trajectory of it is the cross. It's God becoming like us and dying in our place as a substitute. And so the Gospel, when we say the Gospel, it means good news. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is, is the, the idea with it is substitution. God substituted himself for us and died in a cursed manner on a cross, bearing our sins and the wrath of God with it. And so as we believe in him and trust in that as though it's sufficient to save, we are saved. So it makes a person a Christian. It's just putting faith in, in that. But the Bible is full of either declaring that or demonstrating that. And so we've been seeing in Matthew here the two. Either Jesus talks about it explicitly with his words and declares it. That's going to become more pronounced as uh, the gospel goes on, or it's demonstrated physically. So we see a lot of that as well. And actually, you could argue that the whole of the Bible is this way, not just Matthew, but everything in the Bible is either a demonstration, a physical, implicit demonstration of the cross, or it's, a, it's an explicit declaration. And in, in a sense, it's, it's a crude simplification, but you could say that the Old Testament in general is one big demonstration or anticipation of God becoming like us to die in our place, the gospel. The cross. And the New Testament is basically, especially after the cross, one big declaration of that truth. That it's true. If we put our faith in it, we're saved, and it, and it calls us to something you know, bigger than ourselves, and it, it transforms us. So in, again, crude simplification, but in general, that's the case. But these early parts of the gospel accounts are very demonstrative. They declare, but they're types or pictures or images or glimpses of what's going to happen not too far from this vantage point in the, in the near future on the cross. So, for example, when Jesus heals a leper, it's a demonstration. He doesn't heal all lepers. He heals very few. It's a demonstration that he's about to go to the cross to heal spiritual cripples, spiritual lepers, spiritual demonized people from their sins. And he does that. So that's basically the idea. The Old Testament's full of that stuff as well. Words as well, and specific prophecies about the Christ, definitely declarations, but a lot of demonstrations uh, too. So have that interpretive framework in mind. Actually, another idea too, I was thinking about this first service, is um, just the other week, my wife and I got our wedding pictures out to show our kids, and which is great, and they enjoyed seeing that. I mean, Jane's at an age now where she can maybe appreciate it a little bit more, you know, than when she's three or something, but she's seven. And it was just fun for us to look at, but basically what it did is, is it pointed us to the reality of our wedding day. That's the better thing. The pictures are just pictures. They're great in as much as they remind us of the wedding day. But the wedding day is 
far and away the greater thing, right? It's the same thing in the Bible. The cross and the empty tomb, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, is the reality. Everything, a lot, everything else, or a lot of other things anyway, are pictures or demonstrations of that reality. To the point where you could argue, I think the Bible does this elsewhere in the New Testament, using reality and shadow metaphor. If you take away that reality, or in our case, if you take away the wedding day, the pictures cease to exist. Or at least they mean really nothing anymore. It's the same in the Bible. If you take away the cross and the empty tomb, the rest of the Bible does not mean anything. Jesus was always God's plan A. He was always intended to come into the world and to glorify himself that way by saving his people from their sins. And so it is the interpretive framework. St. Augustine, uh, to mention him again, Jacob did earlier, said that. He said that the, the New Testament is the key to unlock meaning in the Old Testament. It's basically again, that same idea. Without the key of the gospel, the Old Testament does not take on true meaning. And so that's been our interpretive framework for these early parts of the, of the gospel accounts as well because we're not at the cross yet. We're still heading there. And as we head there, we're getting stories like this. We talk about Jesus walking on water today. Stories that really only find true meaning in the cross. Alone on an island, they just don't have the same punch. And they were never intended to. God wanted the punch to be at the cross and the trajectory to be on the cross, to make a beeline, really. As Jesus says, as the gospel writer Luke says about Jesus, when he, he's in the Galilean region now, so north of Jerusalem quite a ways. But at some point in his ministry, and we'll see this in Matthew as well, he's going to set his eyes on Jerusalem. It's a key moment, a dramatic moment in the gospels where Jesus is, he knows he's heading there, but Jerusalem's where he's going to die, to be clear. So he's going to set his mind, going to the, he's knows he's going to go, he's knows he's going to be rejected, he knows he's going to be given over to sinful men, to Gentiles, to die on a cross. All of that's a part of the plan. Uh, so he's setting his eyes there to go, and that's basically you know, the interpretive idea and framework. We should have, when we read, even semi-cryptic things, like Jesus walking on water, because we have to ask, what does this mean? So what that he walked on water? What does that mean in a greater biblical, what does that mean for my life? And what does that mean in a greater biblical you know, stance or perspective in terms of what the rest of the Bible says about similar matters? So, so have that in mind today as we uh, uh, go forward here in Matthew 14, 22 to 36. Let's read it. Verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Just stop right there for one second. One thing to note right off the bat here in context, if you weren't here last week, we just talked about, Spencer preached on the feeding of the 5,000 or the thousands, multiplying bread and fish, just a handful of it, miraculously to feed thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So that's what happened right before this. And in most of the gospel accounts, that's the case. We have that miracle, and then we have this miracle of walking on water. So when it says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and dismissing the crowds, the crowds are there for that feeding miracle. And one thing we have to note here, it's, it's not as clear in Matthew, but in the Gospel of John, it's much more clear. In John 6, 15, about the feeding of the 5,000 miracle, it says, because of that miracle, the crowds wanted to make Jesus king. They were so impressed by the miracle, they wanted to, they wanted to just make him king right there. And, after, and because of that, or in that, through that, Jesus sends the disciples away so that they won't be involved in this king-making process, and actually that the whole matter be dismissed. The whole endeavor to make him king there, uh, in, in Jesus' eyes, did not, should not happen. So he dismisses the crowd to make sure he's not made king there. This tells us now, this is important to note, it tells us a ton about how Jesus wants to be king, on what terms, when he's going to become king, in what manner is he going to become king. Because remember, so far in Matthew, he's done a ton of strange things, like heal someone, 
but then tell that person, don't tell anybody I healed you, not a soul. In other cases, we're going to see this more clearly in Matthew 16 when the disciples, I mean, finally fully realize you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the sent one of God, you're the the ultimate one who's going to bring a yes to all of God's promises in the Old Testament. He tells them right after that, be sure you don't tell anyone that you know this. We have to ask why. And in this case, he's dismissing crowds, right? He's saying they want to make him king, but he's dismissing crowds. What this tells us is there's something better on the horizon. There's a better way he's going to become king, a different way. If, If this is why he came into the world, to become king in this manner, he'd embrace it. But he doesn't. And all of these types of things I just mentioned should point us out of the cross to say he wants to become king in that manner. He wants to become king through suffering. He wants to become king by squashing our true enemies of sin and death. God's wrath against us. He wants to to ease that and calm that and still that. As we're going to see, you're actually demonstrated today in the sea, walking on the sea story. So have that in mind. And and again, flip it around if it's helpful. It's helpful for me to think about this. If the cross was not the reason he came, then he would much more likely have embraced the crowd's desire to make him king right here, right? He'd be like, let's do it. Let's get it on. But he's not. He says, no, he dismisses the crowds. He, He calms people down and says, no. He scatters them, and he sends his disciples out in a boat into the middle of, of the Sea of Galilee. That's the context here. So this is more of an aside today. So I want to make sure this is clear, and I want you guys to see how that ties into Jesus saying, don't tell people about me. You know, don't tell people I healed. Don't reveal my identity. Because he's trying to, in those cases, ensure that, in one sense, he's revealing himself for sure. But in another sense, he's trying to ensure that he be rejected. Because the only way to bring life to the world is if the Son of God dies. There is no other way according to Jesus, according to the Bible. That's the only way. So it's part of the drama of this is the unfolding of all of that. And here we see it again. Why are you dismissing crowds? What's going on? And, and so we know as we piece these things together, it's just consistent with the rest of the story. There is something better, more important on the horizon. The climax of all of this, which it, he has to go to the cross. He has to die to bring his love and mercy and grace and forgiveness to the world. That is the channel. There's no other way God brings a channel of forgiveness. That's it. That's the way he deals with sin. All right, that's going to come a little bit later here as well. But for now, uh, there you go. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 24. But the boat at this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. All right. So a couple of things on this last section. We're not going to talk a lot about verses 34 to 36 today, but just you know, for contextual reasons, if you are familiar with this or if you've been here for Matthew, remember that at one point earlier, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee to heal a demonized man. 
It's in context with him stilling the sea in a different uh, way. It's going to be reminiscent of today's passage as well. But when he did that, he left. And the idea here is that that person, that man, and those maybe who watched it as well, evangelized and just let people know about this Jesus so that when he came back, it says they recognized him. He'd already been there once. And they brought more people to him to be healed uh, in, in another, similar but another way. So that's basically what's going on, what's going on there. I want to spend most of our time, though, on the sea and what happens there with Jesus walking on the water and bringing Peter out onto the water as well. Tons going on here. I'm not going to talk about everything. There might be some questions you have or issues that you notice that I'm not touching on, and that's probably likely the case. I want to try to hone in, though, on, on the big picture, and that is I'm going to opt for this today. It's about Jesus, not us. Not about Peter. This is about Christ and his relentless pursuing unmatched grace to save lost sinners. And in fact, if you're new to the Bible, what you really get in today's passage is a synopsis of the entirety of redemptive history. Right here, in about whatever it is, 10 verses or plus. That's what we get. It's really cool. I'll piece together some of that as we go, but if you're not new, you'll just be reminded of that, and you'll see the beauty of that. But if you're new to the scriptures, it's a great day to be here. If you're not Christian, great day to be here to get, a, a, in a nutshell, what does it mean to be a, what does it mean that God has stayed committed to his creation, stayed, stayed in love with us, and, and demonstrated that through the person and work of Christ? So we're going to see that uh, play out today. All right, so I want to set the stage for the imagery. This is super important to get right off the bat, or else we just simply will not understand uh, the passage. And so we asked the question, like I hinted at before, what does the rest of the Bible say about this imagery? What is the rest of the scriptures? How does it help us interpret it? As, the, as though the new were interpreting the old and the, and the old was setting the stage for the new. Stormy seas, seas in general, but stormy seas in particular biblically, are always metaphors and symbols for evil, chaos, sin, death, and even many times God's wrath. We see this all over the Bible. We could talk hours even, just unpacking those types of passages Throughout the Bible, some things might come to mind for you even as I speak this, but think in particular about the story of Noah's family in the ark in Genesis 6 to 9 in the Old Testament being saved from a global flood. God looks at the world in rebellion against him and says, I'm sorry I made the earth. I'm going to destroy it. And so in that sense, the, the stormy waters are an extension of his judgment, but he saves Noah and his sons and all of their wives and two of every animal in, in the kingdom, land animals. So... Uh, that's the story. And the context there is the stormy seas, literally a global flood, the biggest in, in one sense you could say story in this matter, but um, flooding the earth. The Psalms and prophets talk about this as well, linking our sin and even identifying our enemy with a stormy sea poetically. So w- one great place against, or to show this is in Psalm 69, 14, where the psalmist says, Deliver me from sinking mire. Note the word sinking there. It's going to come up uh, in today's passage here as well. Deliver me from sinking mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. See what he does there? My enemy is like deep stormy waters. It constitutes poetically a problem. Save me from my enemies. They're like deep waters surrounding me, and I'm drowning. Let not the flood sweep over me. Pointing back to Noah and the flood, but also, as we're going to see today, pointing ahead to today's story too. Many other places in the Bible. Or the deep swallow me up, and then he brings in death. Or the pit, death, close its mouth over me. So with, this, with all this in mind, then, Jesus is not randomly performing another miracle. I just want to make sure at least that's clear today. God's not a random God. He is the most intentional being in the universe. He's not a random, random savior, God. He's not just thinking, 
after he's praying for a little bit on the mountain, I think I'll just go and walk on some water right now. It'd be kind of cool. I can do that. And my disciples would be pretty impressed with that. He's not thinking that. He's keeping in step here with a greater biblical theological theme and demonstrating his mastery over it, his mastery over the seas. In other words, when Jesus walks on water, what's being taught to us, demonstrated is Jesus is greater than evil. He walks on it. Jesus is greater than our sins. He has mastery over them. Jesus is greater than death. Jesus is the stiller, in a lot of ways, of God's wrath against us for our sins. This is God's mission. This is what he's showing us. This is redemptive plan, bringing himself into the world to be the one to advocate for us before him as well. That's what's being taught here in, in a big picture. So with this in mind, what we're seeing then here is a demonstration or glimpse of the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of God in the world. And I think three things. I'll come back to some of this here in a second, but, but three things to back up a second. He's saying, first of all, I'm God. I'm divine. When he walks on the sea, and people don't do this very often, right? They don't really walk on water off of boats or off the shore. So he's divine. He's miraculously doing this. And furthermore, the statement, it is I, when Jesus says, take heart, it is I, the it is I, the, the grammatical construction in the Greek is very reminiscent of, in the Old Testament, when God says to Moses, tell Pharaoh, I am sent you. God calls himself the great I am in the Old Testament. And the grammatical construction here is, is identical. So it's, it's meant to hearken us back and point us back to, he's basically saying I'm God in the way he talks here and the way he walks on water. Furthermore, the, the most clearest is he's worshipped, right? The very end of the passage, people say, clearly you're the son of God and explicitly they worship him and he does not correct them. Every other time in the Bible, like when an angel is worshipped or when a prophet is even adored too much, you must not do that, they say. There's only one God, one. And he's creator of everything, and only he gets, only he's worthy of praise. So angels implore people, you must stop it, they say, like in the book of Revelation. But Jesus does not do that here. Because it's right, because he's God. It's right for him to be worshipped. It's right for him to be called God because he is. That's the first thing. He's God walking on water. Second thing is the flip side of this. He's a man. So the disciples look out and they say, it's a ghost. It's a spirit. But Jesus says, no, it's me. It's Jesus of Nazareth. It's your friend. It's a human being. The one who walks with you and laughs with you and eats with you. The one who's leading you. Your discipler. Your leader. So it was wrong to call him a ghost because he wasn't a ghost or a spirit. He was a human being. So two sides of the same coin. He's saying he's God and he's saying he's human walking on the water. These first two pieces are crucial. A God-man walked on the waters. Have that in mind. This is what's being talked about here and demonstrated. A God-man walked on the seas. All that imagery about the stormy seas in mind, a God-man walked on it. Not just God, a ghost or a spirit, who kind of looked like a man, and not just a human being, but who was fully God as well. That's crucial to our... That's a... That is a foundational piece to being Christian and understanding what Christianity is all about. If Jesus is just a man, the whole thing falls down. If he's just God, there's no way to advocate as one of us and to die as one of us in our place for our sins. Hebrews 2.17 gets at this in the, elsewhere in the New Testament. It says, Therefore, Jesus had to be made human in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to bring us to God as a high priest, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation means to make favorable. The idea is no human being is favorable to God when we're born, when we just live, when we're born into our sin. But because of what Jesus does as a high priest is dying for sins, he makes us propitious. 
or favorable to God. So propitiation basically means to deter wrath, to take away that penalty. He's, he's in that way, the sea stiller and the chaos ender. So this is huge. God did not become a rock. God did not become a plant. God did not become an animal to save an animal, a plant, or a rock. He specifically became a human being to save human beings. Crucial. This is why the, the church went to war over these things in the early centuries when these things were threatened or not believed in or when leaders in the church tried to, tried to systematize these things and they got it wrong. When they made Jesus more human than divine or more divine than human. The church went to war over these things to systematize them in the proper biblical manner to make sure that these things are preserved. And we're, we're trusting in God as a God-man to save and don't go too far uh, to the extremes. So the manner by which Jesus walks on water testifies to this and to his mission. So those are the first two things. He's God, he's human, and this tells us about his mission as well. So it's the, the fact that he walks on water tells us what he came here to do. The fact that Jesus never took up arms against Roman occupation in the land, and yet he's walking on stormy seas, like stuff like this, actually more than once in the Bible. He's stilling seas at least more than once, and doing things like dining with prostitutes and, and performing miracles upon miracles and, and teaching about spiritual matters. But he's not taking up arms to be a physical king in that manner, to basically say, the Romans are your enemies and I'm here to deliver you from them. This tells us all about his mission, right? It tells, it tells us more about why he came. The ultimate way Jesus walks on water, he's walking on water here. The ultimate way he walks on sin is on the cross. That's where this is headed because it's there that he rules over and calms sin. That's where he stills our, our chaotic souls, and they're chaotic apart from him. In a lot of ways, too, he calms weak and wounded sinners like us. This is going back to what I said before about being a, a great picture and demonstration of the whole story of the Bible. I think when I was reading this this morning, I just thought, this is really reminiscent of Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, rebel against God, want to become their own gods, reject him, listen to the snake and the, and the serpent, all that. When they do that, what's, what happens right Im immediately after that? They realize they're naked, and they hide from him, and they're afraid. They're instantly, they move from being in close communion with God to being feared for their life from God. That should tell you a lot about sin right there. That's another sermon. But anyway, when they do that, it's reminiscent here of what's going on in the boat, right? They're seeing Jesus, they're separated from God, and they're freaked out. And they see God and they're afraid of him. But God stays committed to his creation. He's committed to his people and he reaches out, stills the sea and grabs Peter's arm when he's in the water and pulls him up. This is like the whole Bible right there. It's basically what you have. is a reminder of Genesis 3, a reminder of our separation, a reminder of, of wrath and judgment in stormy sea kind of metaphor way, and, and a reminder of how amazing Jesus is, how much he initiates salvation, how much we don't, how much he comes to us, we don't go to him. The waves are against us. We're out in the middle of a lake. Jesus, God, leaves shore, leaves heaven, comes to us, becomes like one of us, dies for our sins. I mean, all this is just depictive of the great story. It's just we're getting it in 10, you know, 12, 14, whatever it is. Didn't do the math uh, uh, verses here. So that's what's being demonstrated. He reassures, calms the seas, but sinners uh, with him. If Matthew 14 is an anthill, then the mountain is the cross. Think about it that way. Similar shapes, I guess, to a degree. The anthill here is this little walking on sea here uh, thing that he does. Amazing, powerful, but it's, it's meant to point backwards into the Old Testament for all the reasons we talked about and point ahead 
to the mountain of when he dies on the cross for us. That's when he really walks on water. That's when he really calms stormy seas. That's when he rebukes it, looks at it and says, and goes to war for it and destroys it for us. All right. So the way I picture this this morning is that's the frame. And I think that a lot of the gospel accounts just have that. Matthew has Peter walking out on the water as well, which is really cool. We learn a lot more, I think, about our role, or I guess non-role, you could say, in salvation because of how Peter walks out in the water here, the nature of God's character and all this stuff. We can make some more affirmations, I think, about the frame, the general thing we just talked about here, so kind of fill in the gap, so to speak, uh, because we have more content here with Peter walking out in the water. So that's what I want to do for the rest of our morning. That's the frame we just talked about. Let's make some more affirmations about uh, the nature of salvation and Jesus' character in our uh, role or non-role here uh, in all of that. So the first thing is, when Peter walks out on the water and goes to that whole thing and is, you know, sees the waves, doubts, pulled up by Jesus, and then Jesus brings him to the boat, storms, you know, calms the sea, all that. Uh, one of the things Peter tells us is that our salvation experience is glorious but messy. And that's okay. It's okay to have the messy component. Very, very common, natural, expected, normal, biblical. So many times, and what I mean by that is many times Jesus saves us amidst a storm before he stills it, if he ever stills it. Sometimes he rebukes the wind and the waves outright. So I'm kind of widening the metaphor here to go beyond just sin and death the stormy sea metaphor thing, widening that out a little bit just to refer to the storms of life, whether that be persecution, suffering, sickness, death of a loved one, whatever it might be, just turbulence, chaos. could be a spiritual thing like feeling distant from God, the storm of that. Whatever it is in your life, many times Jesus will save us amidst that before he stills the storm afterwards. And the chronology here, I think, is just raw and beautiful and just beautifully depictive of what the human experience really is as a spiritual person, as a Christian. Either way, he gets the glory. I mean, note that due to the storm and subsequent stilling of the storm and lifting Peter out of it, God, Jesus is worshipped as God. And again, I think this tells us in a subtle way that God uses difficult things to give himself glory and to bring us to him and to show us that we all the time need him. This is what he does through pain, many things. But he tells us that we just, it's one of the things Peter and the disciples told, for sure God, right? We need him. And Jesus will do that sometimes through pain. Like C.S. Lewis said, you know, suffering is like a, a megaphone to rouse a, a deaf and slumbering world. Paraphrased. But he said it better. But anyway, basically that. It's like a megaphone. That's what it is. And suffering in general is, I mean, Christ goes through this as well. It's a big, big, big theme in Matthew that we see over and over again is God using the difficulty, actually the whole Bible, God working through evil and difficulty to bring about great good. The Christian God is like that, and really no other God is. We have answers for this, and it doesn't make it easy to, to quantify or to, to categorize. It's messy for sure. We don't always have the answers, but we know at least that we have a God that took the abomination of the cross and brought about the greatest good ever that will ever be through it. Nothing you ever experience will be as bad as the cross. Nothing you ever experience will be as good as his resurrection and what he, what he accomplished for you through his death and resurrection. So everything you experience will be in here. So if you have the extremes, you have an anchor for the soul in those, that God handled the ends here, and he will handle your life. He will lift you out of the storm. He will be there. He's not on the shore. 
He's there with you right now. He promised that. One of the biggest promises of the entire Bible is I will never leave you. That's what God says over and over. Do you believe that's true today? That he will never, ever, ever leave you. And he shows that to us through, through the cross. So that's the first thing. Peter tells us that our salvation experience is glorious but messy, and, and that's okay. Uh, secondly, we'll come back to some of that here too, uh, but he's, he's being saved, actually, extension of that, I shouldn't say it's the second thing, more an extension of this, is he's being saved amidst doubt, right? So Peter walks out there, he sees the wind and waves, he focuses on it rather than Jesus, and he starts to sink because of that. And so he has some doubt. Uh, and I think that the key here, though, is to look at this idea that he's still being saved. Jesus still, amidst his doubt, is reaching out, grabbing his arm, and pulling him up lovingly. So a doubt is a threat to us, I think, as Christians, no doubt, but it doesn't necessarily mean we've lost our salvation. There's encouragement and, I think, and a warning in that. The encouragement is Jesus is stronger than your doubt. Our faithlessness does not equate to his faithlessness. His, the Bible says when we're faithless, he's faithful in uh, 1 Timothy 2, I believe, or 2 Timothy 1, one of the two, or 2 Timothy 2, whatever. One of the Timothys, in the early part. All right. When, he's, when, he, when we're faithless, he's still faithful. He remains uh, faithful to us and persevering in salvation over us. It's one of the wonderful truths of the whole of the scriptures. It's not based on us that we're saved. It's based on his faithlessness or faithfulness shown to us in the gospel of Christ. So Jesus is stronger than our doubt. Remember the mustard seed idea too. And Jesus said, if you have faith this big in me, it's enough. The Bible doesn't say that you should have an incredibly huge faith and therefore you're saved. It just says, just have a little bit of faith in me. If it's focused on me, that's enough. Which implies, I think, that there will be seasons of a little bit of doubt. Like Peter's having here. He's still saved. So another guy says in the Bible, I believe in you, but help my unbelief. And he's a, a spiritual, uh, he's, a, he's held up as, as an example in a way. Great prayer. Pray that, by the way. I believe God. Help in what ways I'm not believing in you, help that. Because only you can change my hardened, unbelieving heart. See, wrapped up and embedded in that prayer is God makes me believe in him. He softens my heart. I'm dead without him. So it's a great prayer. Anyway, but also another sermon. But the encouragement here is Jesus is stronger than your doubt. The warning, though, is the flip side of the coin, don't have too much doubt, which can equate to flat-out unbelief. So, and one thing I want to be clear here, though, on is what the doubt is really about. I used to think when I read this passage before that the doubt was really about Peter's belief on whether he could actually walk on water or not. You know? Peter getting out of the boat and saying, and so basically Jesus is saying, if you believed that you really could walk on water, if you had enough like subjective faith and if you willed that, you could have done it, but you failed the test. But that's not what's in focus here. It's never, that's never mentioned. When faith and doubt are talked about in the Bible, it's always in reference to, is God enough to save you or not? Is he sufficient? Or is something else more beautiful? Or more of a threat? See, beautiful things can threaten us too. More beautiful or more of a threat to us. That's always when it's referenced. So really, the doubt here is, is Jesus bigger than the storm? And Peter believed it for a minute when he was walking out in the water, right? He thought, Jesus, my God, is bigger than than the obstacle of walking on water, and bigger than the storm, i.e., bigger than sin, bigger than death, bigger than the threat of the wind. All of that. He actually believed that. And true Christians believe that. That's what makes them say. But the doubt creeped in when he looked at the wind and the waves, the severity of it, and he doubted whether Jesus was really able to keep saving him. 
in the middle of the water. That's the doubt that should freak us out and that we should be on guard against. See, Christians run this race of faith throughout their life where they're constantly called back to believing Jesus is enough. Because you will constantly throughout your life hear the opposite. You will constantly hear lies. You'll constantly be tempted to replace him with yourself or some other false god. Or wed him to some other theology that makes it a little bit about Jesus, but also a little bit about just some other god or your doubt, you know, or something like that, some other threat to it. So we all, this is what church is about, in part. Church is about a lot of things. Church is, you could say, uh, one of the top things is about that, calling Christians back to Jesus. Because we will forget this when we leave here or next week. If we're not in community, if we're not reading the gospel, hearing the gospel, singing about the gospel, we will forget it. If you're not a Christian here today, this is what church is about too. Heralding the best news you will ever hear to you, telling you. We want to tell you that. But there's no better news than this. God is like this. You are like Peter. He is, Jesus is like Jesus in this passage. And in this manner, he is coming to you now and you're reaching out his hand saying, I love you. You're my friend. I've died for you on the cross. I, I, I'm offering a storm-stilling storm salvation to you if you will just believe in me that it's enough. So that's what it's about. All right, so he's being saved amidst doubt. So our salvation experience then, I think, in a nutshell, will be one of just one great calling from the tombs throughout our life, or in this case, the boat, amidst the storm to be with Jesus forever. But as we do that, we'll be slipping, tripping, sinking, not fully repented, but all underneath the Savior who calls to us nonetheless and saying, I'm making salvation possible. So Peter says, command that I go out to you. Make possible that I'm saved. Make possible that sin won't have dominion over me anymore. Make possible that death won't have its way for me anymore. That's what he's saying. And so we can't do this alone. So, but the whole time, the messiness of it that I love is Peter's still sinking, tripping up, having doubts, but Jesus trumps all. And he pulls people up nonetheless out of love. He loves Peter. He loves his disciples. He's going to just, don't miss the obvious. He's going on a rescue mission here, right? He's going, he sees people in trouble, and he goes out to save them. That's what this is about, and that's what God is all about for you right now today, if you believe that, because we are all on that boat. This is the, the amazing character of God that we have to grasp. It's not just functional. There's love in it. There's personality in it. There's relationship in it. This is what he thinks of you, the creator of everything. All right, so that's the first thing. Peter tells us that our salvation experience is messy, and that's okay. If we feel distant from God, doubt, wrestling with a super deep sin perpetually, in that state, reach out for him. As you're sinking, cry out to him, and immediately he'll reach out his hand doesn't say, and after five minutes of thinking about it, Jesus thought it was a good idea and reached out his hand. Immediately, he reached out his hand and he grabbed Peter. If you cry out to God for deliverance right now, right now is even some preaching. If you're not a Christian yet, immediately he will save you. There's no delay because atonement for sin has been dealt with. There's no more barrier between you and him. He's already finished that. So if you cry out for him, he will immediately, circle that word if you like to circle things in your Bible. One of the best words in the whole paragraph. Immediately. He reached out his hand and did it. That's good news. All right, second thing. That was the first thing, the messiness thing. Second thing is related. Peter shows us here that the point is not him. The point is not us, but the point is Jesus. Spencer did a great job last week talking about this issue 
in relation to the feeding of the thousands. I want to just bring it back today and look at it from a fresh angle here with this story. So to be clear, the point here is not Peter is amazing. Copy him. Peter's not amazing. But a lot of people will teach that. And it's likely that many, many of you have read books on that with the premise of that. Sort of as though this passage is a how-to on how to walk on water. Let's go back to Matthew 14. How to really you know, walk on water in life. And they, and they use this passage and it's just terrible. But you know, it's, it's out there. The point here is not that. The point is Jesus is amazing. Actually, if you, if you guys have your English Bibles, if you want to open your Bible now, you could do it just to see. Some English translations, uh, well actually all of them I think to a degree or most, have subtitles over sections of a, of a, you know, and verse numbers, just to help us navigate a little bit more and find things easier. It's very good we have those. But they're not the inspired word of God. Just, just note that. Some of you maybe weren't aware of that. But they're not, like, they're not in the original Bible that God breathed into existence and inspired people to write. So those headings are not always infallible you know, or perfect. Some of, your, some of your English translations have, over this section, Peter walks on water. Some have, Jesus walks on water. First one is garbage. Just trash it. In fact, cross it out because you can cross that out in your Bible because that's not in the Bible. That's just a, if it's in there, I'd say cross it out or cross out Peter and put Jesus above it because Jesus walks on water is the right subtitle if there is. Just going to say it because it is. If you, if you focus on Peter, you're going to miss all this great gospel image that we're talking about here today. If your focus is what's going on with Peter, how could we be like Peter and emulating? Isn't Peter great that he had the boldness to get out of the boat? Isn't Peter amazing that he had the faith to do that? Everything I talked, almost, I'd say 95% of what I just talked about, you're, you're going to be blind to, which is what we're supposed to get to. So, point here is, is Jesus, Jesus walks on water. So the point is, the point is not about rising above your circumstances. The point is not about having a ton of faith. The point is not about self-confidence that Peter seemed to exude for a little bit. The point's not about trying harder. It's not a how-to book on how to walk on water, like I said before. Point is about Jesus saying, come to me. Don't fear. It's me, your friend, your savior, your God, your leader. I am here to rescue you. It's about Jesus seeing us in distress and coming to our rescue. It's about Jesus reaching out his hand to catch us when we fall. It's about Jesus making the wind cease. It's about Jesus saving us by grace, not by our works. I mean, if this were about us and being great before God, if this were a test of faith for Peter, he would have failed and been left to drown. This is about Jesus' grace. He picks him up as he doubts. He picks him up as he looks at the winds. He picks him up as a sinful man like us. He picks him up in that state. But if this were about God's power and God's grace, he's going to pick him up out of that water, right? If this is about us saving ourselves, Peter fails, Peter drowns. That's not what God is like. It's not what Jesus is like. It's not what the gospel is like. The gospel is God does everything. We do nothing. We receive, he gives. We cannot give to God. We cannot. The only thing we can do is respond to the thanksgiving, which gives him tons of glory. We can worship. We can give in that way. But it's not really giving anything quantitatively. It's just responding out of gratefulness, like we do when someone gives us a present. All right. So that's what this is, that's what this is about. If it's, if it's about us at all, it's about looking, not, not the tempta- avoiding the temptation to look at the waves of our sin and of death. And, and like we talked about before, uh, believing that Jesus cannot take care of those things. I mean, some of you guys are sitting here probably thinking, either as a Christian or not, Jesus did not 
die for this type of sin. He can't mend. The state of my marriage right now, he can't mend. Some of you are thinking that. Some of you are thinking, I've been in this sin for 15 years, I just can't shake it. I don't think he forgives me anymore. Part of the point of Matthew 14 is to say, Jesus does. He loves you, and he's able, and he forgives you. He walks on your sin. He's He's Lord of it, master of it, distiller of it. You've got to feel, I love that the Bible does this, by the way, too, that it says these things, it proclaims them, and it shows them at the same time. So we get both. It's like a beautiful puzzle piece. We get, we get a demonstration and a declaration so that we're getting both angles, you know, for the, I'm pretty kind of artistic today, so I kind of get the demonstration, but I just want the words today. So I get, you know, both are great, but we need both. Both these things are declaring or demonstrating the fact that God is bigger than the wind, i.e., he's bigger than your sin. He's He's died for it. The darkest corner of your heart, he's handling and taking the burden of that on his shoulders. Believe that today. Remember uh, at Christmas time, almost here, I guess. Well, for some of you, it's been Christmas for six weeks maybe, but not for, not for our house, but another thing there. Um, anyway, when, when Jesus was born, it was declared to the earth, to the world, that a Savior has been born. Not a teacher has been born. Not a guru. Not a moralist. That's not good news. But it's good news that a Savior has been born. So don't miss the obvious thing there. A Savior has been born. A sea trampler has been born. A chaos ender has been born. You see what this passage tells us about his mission? This is about God and his power and his grace and his love. So don't, don't, we, can't, we have to resist, resist the temptation to cheapen this passage by reading ourselves into it too much and making it about us. This is not about us. This is about him, and God wants you to know how how amazing he is, how much he loves you, and how much he has taken your sin and destroyed it forever through his work on the cross. So that said, let's let's pray, and we'll respond with a couple of songs here. God, thank you uh, for this passage today, for the gospel of Christ in it, for grace in it. Thank you for reminding us that it is all about you. There's nothing the disciples do but really witness this event happening. They're just bystanders. So are we to salvation. We are like Israel on the sidelines watching David destroy Goliath, just watching it happen. You are the ultimate David. You are, you are the one who walks on water and makes it possible for us to be freed from our sins as well. Always, 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 tirelessly, 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 biblically about you. God, forgive us for being about ourselves. Forgive us our selfishness, our self-deifying acts, our arrogance. Free us and say our disbelief, our doubt. Save us from all those things, God. Pluck us up from the mire, as Psalm 69 says, from sinking in our sin. Uh, save us. And God, I pray that these ideas would infuse spiritual health into us like never before in our entire lives. Be a Christian 30 years and be sitting here right now. May this week be freshly exciting, grateful, full of thanksgiving, full of just wanting to read the Bible, full of wanting to see these, these things in the scriptures and just being freed from not having to read ourselves in and, and reading burden into it uh, as though God saves us based on what we do because you don't. Just thank you for your grace, God, at the end of the day for coming to rescue us in the stormy sea of sin, death, and judgment. Praise God that really happened in the world. And we just give you all the glory. Help us to respond now out of gratefulness. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.